If you know me even a little bit, you know that I'm a tragic wannabe surfer, right? Being Irish, I spent pretty much no time in the water growing up. And believe it or not, surfing wasn't a big sport. It wasn't even considered cool, even though it is now. And that's probably got something to do with the fact that the water got to like 14 degrees at its hottest. But when I arrived in Cronulla in 2001 for a year, um, I fell in love with the idea of surfing and being a surfer. So I jumped on this old crusty gun that had been given to me with someone with absolutely no idea, like think Bondi Rescue, I was probably one of those guys. Anyway, I would paddle in for a surf with people um, who had been surfing for years and I just always struggled to get out the back. And pretty much every time that the surf was anything over chest height, I was just worried constantly that I wouldn't have the capacity to take a pounding and then paddle back to shore. And because I had little experience and a whole heap of enthusiasm, I got copped a lot. Like I got smashed and tumbled loads. But each time that I did and survived, what happened was my confidence grew. And it wasn't really because of my ability, but it was because I knew that I was only ever a few arm lengths away from the safety of my board. Something happened um, that built my confidence each time I got pummeled and then realized that. And I was confident um, that I was only a few arm's lengths away from my board because of this thing. My trusty leg rope, you see, I quickly realized that no matter how much I would get pummeled by the surf, that all I needed to do was reach down and to my leg and give my leg rope a couple of tugs and I'd be able to flop onto my surfboard and get washed up onto shore, safe but filled with sand. Now, no matter how hard and um, how tired I was, or how hard the surf was, I knew that I would never be separated from my board because of my leg rope. It was that thing that enabled a tragic wannabe Irish surfer to conquer the waves of Australia. Well, not quite, especially if you ask my son or anybody who surfed um, with me. Now, I know that leg ropes can snap. I know that boards can snap. And I even know that when you've got both of those things and that you've still got the possibility of drowning. But every time I get into the water and I actually strap a leg rope onto my leg, I'm reminded that as Christians, we have a far greater confidence that no matter how much we get pummeled by the sufferings of life, that because of the chain of salvation, which is like the ultimate leg rope, that God predestines, calls, justifies, and glorifies that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That we are more than conquerors, not because of our ability to navigate the waters of life, not because of our ability to hold up a stoic faith, but because in Christ, nothing can separate us. That cord that connects us to God cannot break and will never break. In fact, it's so strong that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor present nor future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
And this is the conclusion that we've been working towards in our series on Romans 1, 6 to what? 6 to 8. In fact, it's been something that Paul has been laying up for us the whole way since chapter 1, where he presents to us a problem. And that problem is that essentially we are separated, separated from our Creator, separated from God, separated from the one who made us, from the one who loves us because of this thing called sin that makes us unrighteous. In other words, it makes us not right in our relationship towards God. And that means that we are separated from him. Everyone. That there is nothing, we are told by Paul, that we can do to actually seek God because of that separation. There is nothing that we can do to understand him because he is holy and we are not. And that effectively makes us, according to Paul, children of wrath. But because of the love of God, while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, God created a way for us to no longer be separated, but united to him through the life death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, who pays the price for all of our sin, past, present, and future, and by faith makes us right before God so that we are justified in his eyes and brought back into a reconciled relationship with him so that we are captured up into an inseparable relationship with the God who made us into a relationship of perfect love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But I reckon if you're like me, you still struggle to believe that, even though we've been hammering on about this for weeks through this series. It's still hard to believe, isn't it? I reckon that if you're anything like me, that you often think that this is just too good to be true. I reckon that if you're like me, you believe that there is a loophole for God and in fact, he is actively looking to see if he can find it. That like the leg rope on my surfboard, that there is a breaking point, which I think would have been a lot of the similar things that was going on for the people in Rome in the day, which is why Paul reminds them and sums up this section in the most epic way ever. And he asks a question, what then shall we say in response to these things? And then he asks four sub-questions, which we're going to look at in turn, not in equal part, but we're going to look at together so that we can come to the same conclusion that Paul does, that we are more than conquerors because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. First question, if God is for us, Who can be against us? Now, this is one of those verses that gets used and abused. It gets tattooed on the muscly front rowers to help them smash the opposition. It gets pulled out by well-meaning friends when you're struggling in life, relationships, or in your business. Now, if that's you, don't hear me. I'm paying you out for holding that idea. But can I just respectfully say that this does not mean that no one will be against you. And God being for us and giving us all things doesn't mean that he will give us all of the desires and pursuits of our hearts. No, we know from earlier in Romans chapter 8 that we will share in the sufferings of Christ and that there will be present sufferings for us that is real and hard. In fact, 
in 1 Peter 4 and in other parts of the New Testament, we know that there will be many who will be against us just simply for following Christ Jesus. So what does Paul mean? Well, he means if God is for you, it doesn't matter who is against you. Everyone could be against you, even Satan himself, which he is, but that matters not because God is for you. Now, for you in what? Well, it could be that he is for you in that he gives us his own son and that he will graciously give us all things, which is true, and we'll get to that in a moment. But before we get there, there's something so obvious and so crucial for us to get that we can so easily miss, and it's bound up in all of these things. That God being for you means that he loves you. That God being for you means he is for you and for your good and for your flourishing and for your betterment. That God being for you means that he doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't regret saving you. He doesn't begrudgingly give you that salvation. He doesn't try to restrict things that will mean that you will flourish in your life. For sure, you can grieve him in your sin, but God loves you because you are in Christ. And that means that he is for you in his love. That's what's in view in verse 38. That's what's in view in Romans chapter 8. You are no longer a child of wrath, but a child of God through Christ Jesus. And that means that he loves you. In fact, part of the all things that he graciously gives us in verse 32 is his love. A gracious gift of love that loves you like his son. And that means that he is for you. And you know, to think anything less, which we all do at times, is just to fully miss the reality of God's love for us, which we actually see in verse 32, because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That is for all who trust and follow Jesus. And because he has done that thing, because he has done the hardest thing, the thing that displays his love more than anything else, then how do we think? How do we even doubt that he will be for us? That he loves us? How do we think that he will not actually graciously give us all things? Because you see, he already has, along with him in Christ. The all things here are not all things that relate to our desires and pursuits of our hearts, but all things that has been given to us in Christ. All things that are connected with salvation as his children and co-heirs with Christ. God is for you in that. In fact, did you notice that he isn't just for you a little bit, but he actually graciously and freely and abundantly gives you these things. You know, we can so often get a picture of God, can't we? And that he is someone who is against us. That he is someone who is miserly towards us. That, that he somehow only loves us because we are in Christ. And that that love is somehow more, is less than what we would think that it is. But no, he loves you. He is for you. 
He is for you. And because he is for you, it would not matter if the whole world were against you. Second question, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? When we don't get that God is for us, in those moments when we struggle with sin, it's so hard for us not to believe the lies of Satan that God is actually no longer for us. But when you think that, it's a lie that comes from the accuser. When we're not regularly communing with God and his people, it's so easy for us to believe that those charges that have been completely cleared through the death of Jesus, that they can, we kind of feel, don't we, that they can be brought out again and reapplied to us. But did you notice how Paul answers this question? He doesn't say no one, which is what I would actually expect him to say. He says, it is God who justifies, which is actually way better because you see, God is the only one who can bring a charge against us because he is the one in whom we have wronged. He is the one whom we were once enemies. In fact, he is the one who did bring a charge against us and all of humanity, which Paul highlights for us in Romans 1 to 3, that we are not righteous, that none of us are or none of us were. But because of Jesus, the verdict of that trial for those whom God has chosen is justified. And you know what? If God justifies you, then it's done. If God gave his only son to pay the price so that you, this could be your verdict, then you are justified. And because it is God who justified you, when it comes to the last day, he will not reopen that case. He will not find new evidence to charge you with because he had it all in the first place and paid it all in his son. Let me just say that again. He will not find new evidence to charge you with because he had it all in the first place and he paid it all in his son. Now that's a way better answer than no one, isn't it? But this question's connected to the next. Third question, who then is the one who condemns? Well, it's no one. If there's no charge, like if God has justified you, then no one can condemn you. I for sure many will try. In fact, one of the things that I used to hear a lot, particularly when I first became a Christian, was, huh, you're meant to be a Christian. You shouldn't say that, think that, do that. Words of condemnation. But if God justifies, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring any charge? Who is the one who condemns? No one. Satan may try. In fact, every time you sin, he does, doesn't he? The father of lies, the great accuser, comes along and he whispers in your ear, really? Again? God is not going to forgive you this time. Didn't you promise that you would stop that? This is not the way that Christians should act. Are you sure that you've been really justified? Are you sure God won't bring those things back out again in the last day? Being a Christian means that you shouldn't suffer. And if God is for you, then he should give you the desires and the plans of your heart. And he's not doing that. So maybe, maybe you're not quite justified. Maybe you're not quite one of his children. Hey, you know what? Once you get back to church and Christians realize how much you have maybe struggled over lockdown or even enjoyed not coming to church, they're going to condemn you. So don't 
bother. Like he tries every trick in the book. And it can feel like, like that sticks. And even it can feel like it's true at times, but even he cannot condemn you. Even he cannot bring a charge against you in the last day that will stick. And no one even includes you, right? You see, half the time, we don't need anybody to accuse us. We're pretty good at doing that ourselves. But you don't have the right to do that. There is actually only one person who has the right to condemn you, and that is Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God. That phrase here is pointing us to an aspect of Jesus' work that qualifies him to be the only judge. Turn with me to Paul's sermon to the Areopagus. I'll try that again. Turn with me to Paul's sermon in the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, and we'll read it out. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Note this. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The only one qualified to judge and condemn on the set day is the one who was raised from the dead, or as Paul puts it here, raised to life and is seated at the right hand of God ruling. But do you see what Jesus is doing here at the right hand of God? Is he complaining? Is he criticizing? Is he convicting? Is he chastising? Is he condemning? No. He is interceding for us. See that for us again? Now we have already seen that the Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness through our prayers. But here it is Christ the redeemer, the ruler, the one who will judge the world, he actually intercedes on our behalf. Now, what does that mean? Well, basically, it means that Jesus is always pleading our case before God the Father. Not that he is forgotten, but that he is continually appealing to him in an ongoing way on the basis of his completed work on the cross. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 um, helps us here. We don't have time to get into it fully, but the writer has been highlighting that Jesus is the great high priest, that there no longer needs to be any sacrifice because his work was complete on the cross. And then he says this in verse 25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The writer of the Hebrews is getting at and a really important thing for us here. He's getting at this idea that based on the completed work of Jesus on the cross, that he is actually able to see his plan to fruition, to save completely. Not that you're only part saved when you put your trust in Jesus, but that you are yet to fully experience the completeness of your salvation until you reach glorification in heaven, which is something, according to Paul, that is absolutely sure to happen. Because you see, Jesus said that it was finished on the cross, and he now literally lives at the right hand of God the Father to intercede for us. Is he condemning? Hey, Dad, Lee, he's not trusting me again. 
Father, there goes, you know, Joe struggling with alcohol. Like, how long are we going to put up with this? Let's just strike him off the list. Hey, Dad, there goes Mary. Like, she promised you years ago that she would give up porn, but she is going back to it like a dog goes back to vomit. Let's just treat her like one. Ha, David, what a greedy chops. Like, we saved him ages ago. But he's still just out for himself. He cannot give or be generous. So let's just hold off some of our generosity. Let's make, no, no, no. There is no one who condemns, not even the one who is qualified. For those in Christ, Christ does not condemn. He intercedes. And because of that, because of the finished work on the cross and because he lives to intercede for you, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Third question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or sword? No, even though we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not through our ability or lack of doubt or sin or struggle, but through him, through Jesus. He is like the leg rope that tethers you to God. Nothing will separate you from that. You may face death all day long, even though you may face a significant suffering, or even though you may succumb to sin and doubt, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Established, I've loved um, doing Romans 6 to 8 over this last while, and I feel that God has been graciously reminding us of some key truths that are essential for your growth and for my growth. And I believe that we're going to see lots of evidences of grace through it. But what I want to do now is, I want to actually help drive this into your ears so that it will go into your hearts and you will believe it and remember it like every time I do when I strap on that leg rope to go for a surf. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read back through verses 31 to 38, and I would love for you to read it out aloud with me so that you can actually hear it. But only this time, I want to make it more personal. I want you to speak these words for yourself. Now, don't worry, you don't need to say it in an Irish accent. And if you're tuning in with somebody else, don't feel embarrassed Just do it, hear it, listen to it. Are you ready? Let's go. If God is for me, who can be against me? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for me, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give me all things? Who will bring any charge against me whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies me. It is God who justifies me. Who then is the one who condemns? No one, not even me. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for me. Who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Shall trouble 
or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, I am more than a conqueror through him who loves me. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now let's just say that last bit again. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Oh, Father, would you deeply press these truths into our hearts through your Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you make them alive in us? Would you enable us to live them out every day? And Jesus, we thank you so much that you are at the right hand of your Father interceding for us. We thank you so much that you are not condemning us, but that you are compelling and competing for us. Help us to live like that is true. And would you um, encourage us in those moments of deep suffering and in this moment even now as we have been separated, as we have not been able to fellowship together, would you not allow Satan to get a foothold and whisper lies that you are not for us? And we thank you so much, Father, that you are for us so much that you graciously give us your son. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen.